Father, we thank you for the power that keeps us. Lord, it is not by our hands, not by our strength that we persevere. It is by your strength in us and through us. And so we thank you for that. We thank you to, to, that you would preserve us all the way to the end, that you would cause in us growth and maturity. We thank you that you would bless us with salvation. And Lord, we just want to give you all the glory for everything we are and everything we will become in you. Lord, we bless you now. Help us as we study your word today. I pray that your word would plant itself in us and change us, and it would make us become more like your son, Jesus. And for those who don't know you, we pray that it would cause in them a change of heart. You would cause in them a desire to repent and believe the gospel. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is a joy and privilege to be with you again today. What a blessing it is to return to our study of Matthew's Gospel. We are at the very end of chapter 26, and we've really made it to the final stretch of our study of Matthew's Gospel. After our passage this week, Jesus will be delivered over to Pilate. He'll be mocked. He will be put on a cross and crucified. He will die. He'll be buried. He will rise again in chapter 28 and... We'll see there that and the Great Commission. Hopefully, we'll be around Easter Sunday when we will land on those passages if the Lord tarries. I'm calling this passage, God in the Whirlwind. And just to be perfectly transparent, this is a stolen title from one of my favorite authors, David Wells. He wrote a book, a completely different subject, doesn't have to do with this, but I thought that was a great title for what we're talking about today. What whirlwind is happening? Well, it's the torrent, the driving wind, really the, the monsoon of sin that happened around the death of Christ. The only way humanity could get the Son of God on the cross was with a whirlwind of sin, injustice, corruption, pride, greed. Many of the events described for us in the Gospels surrounding the death of Jesus are an expression of human depravity. You see this in Judas, the religious leaders of Israel, the political leaders even, as we will see again today, the disciples, all of them contributing to the sin that put Christ on the cross. But amid all this sin, in the midst of this whirlwind of depravity, we will discover today that God is still on His throne, sovereignly governing every aspect of human history. In fact, we see this as a template. God used it and uses all sin for the blessing and benefit of His people to the praise of His glorious grace. And boy, what a great thing to know, even on a personal level. Some of you feel like Peter. You're crushed under a weight of sin. You weep bitterly. You're painfully aware of your sin, your burdens. They weigh you down. Some of you, it's the burden of sins committed against you. You've been victim of these sins. It's encouraging to know that though God never approves from a moral standpoint any sin... He sovereignly uses sin to bring you and others around you, bring you to joy and gratitude and hopefully greater faith. So let's read this together and hopefully we'll come away with that kind of conclusion. 
Matthew 26, I'm going to begin in verse 69 and go down to the end of the chapter, verse 75. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean? But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. He went out to the entrance. Another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too were one of them, for your accent betrays you. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. The subject of sin. I have been told that if I want my church to grow, I need to make sure that when people come here on Sunday, they depart the premises feeling good about themselves. When it comes to church, comes to preaching, People need affirmation, they need encouragement, I've been told. They need good, on, good advice on how to make their lives happier, more bearable. They don't need to hear about sin, especially their own sin, because that might make them feel bad. Indeed, if you look at carefully at some, not all, but if you look carefully at some of the quote-unquote successful churches today, what you will find is a preponderance of sermons and songs about love and acceptance and mercy and joy and peace to the exclusion of anything about sin or the need of repentance. The problem with this approach is twofold, at the very least. First, if I'm to preach the Bible, I must preach about sin because much of the Bible talks about sin. I mean, this whole part of Matthew, like I said, this is a whirlwind of sin. Going all the way back to 24, even earlier, you see betrayal, anger, hatred, denial, violence. I mean, in these chapters alone, we have four deaths. There's injustice at the highest level among religious leaders, hypocrisy, people who are to be the most holy, the most just, they are sinning. In fact, if you look through the entire gospel, even early on in the story that Matthew gives us, we find a lot of sin and even death, the slaughter of hundreds, if not thousands, of young babies. So sure, I can just avoid the dark parts of Scripture. I can avoid sin and repentance. I can avoid the parts that confront us about our own sin and call us to repent but I couldn't do that and at the same time claim to preach the Word, could I? The other problem with this all-too-common approach is that without sin, without depravity, without the fall and all that came after it, the gospel would not be beautiful. Sunrises and sunsets are beautiful because they sit in contrast to the variegated darkness around it. 
If you don't come to the desperate knowledge and conviction of your sin, the gospel is not that beautiful of a thing because you don't think you need it. You will never appreciate the, the truth of Christ crucified for you, for your sin, to relieve you from the judgment of God who's coming to judge you for that sin. Now, thinking on that broad level, God does not sin. He does not tempt people. It all comes from our own hearts. It comes from Satan's desires. It comes from the, the world around. But we, we, we must understand that not only does God allow sin, but He purposes sin for a time to make the gospel and thus Himself glorious. God must have a way to display His mercy and His kindness and His justice. And allowing for a time, though it seems like a long time for us, it's a short time for Him, for allowing for a time sin to enter the universe so that He can display His glorious self in all of these things. Well, this is what Matthew is doing in this part of the gospel. He is painting this bleak backdrop purposed by God so that Christ's person and work are understood as glorious and beautiful and really as the most glorious and most beautiful story ever. And this is one of the parts of the story that ropes us into seeing not just sin generically, but also our own sin, our own guilt and culpability. You see, it's really easy to, to throw rocks at this Religious leaders of that day, we see their hypocrisy so clearly. It's, it's easy to throw rocks at those who are, uh, are the, the political elite at that point, Pilate and others who, who governed these pagans. But here we have a disciple. And not just any disciple. The premier disciple of Jesus Christ. Betraying Christ. Denying Christ when Christ needed him most. A little bit of background. You'll remember, we read Mark's account moments ago, but you'll remember back up in verse 30, the disciples are together minus Judas, and they had the Lord's table. They sang a hymn. Jesus predicted that they would all fall away. As you would expect, Peter, who was likely the oldest and the expected spokesperson of all the disciples, spoke out and said in verse 33, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And if you want to know about the rooster crowing twice and those kind of things that we heard in Mark, you can go back to my sermon over this passage. I discussed that at length in that sermon. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples said the same. Well, true to his word, Peter did that. Peter stuck with Jesus. He went to Gethsemane. He went deeper into Gethsemane. And when it looked like Jesus was going to be arrested and taken, remember verse 51, Peter was the one who pulled out the only sword that the disciples owned, and he tried to take off the head of Malchus, the, the guy who was the, the fellow of the, the, the servant of the high priest who was there to arrest him. Peter was with Jesus all the way until he wasn't. And we often like to poke fun at Peter. He did have a few miscues like any of us. Some have said Peter is the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth. But this is indeed the man who is closest to Jesus. Jesus chose him to be his closest disciple. Jesus knew him. He knew Jesus. In fact, you could argue that Peter knew and knows Jesus better than anyone 
in history. He was the closest person to Jesus. This man is the closest to our Savior. On top of that, as I mentioned, Peter was a spokesman, the, the leader, likely the oldest, perhaps even at this time anyway, the, the only married disciple, so they all sort of looked up to him. And on top of all of that, he is, back in chapter 16, we find out he is the confessor. He is the one who, guided by the Holy Spirit, identified Jesus as Christ, the Son of the living God. He, he believed in his heart. He said, he professed with his mouth that, that Jesus was the Messiah, his Messiah. And not only that, but the second part of the Trinity, he's the Son of God. So the story today, the story of denial, the story of Peter's betrayal, it's a story about Peter. It's not a story about Thaddeus. It's not about Bartholomew. It's not about James the Lesser or Simon the Zealot. None of that. It's about none other than the leading apostle closest to Jesus, Simon Peter. This is the shocking reality. The fact is, we fully expect, if you're reading this for the first time, you fully expect to hear from Peter what we did up in verse 35. Even if I die, I will not deny. We expect maybe Peter to die alongside Jesus. And that's what makes this story of denial and betrayal so shocking. And I think this highlights a truth to us about the nature of sin. Maybe you want to write this down. Point number one, the shocking betrayal of sin. This is a shocking story. Again, we all know Peter denied Jesus. We, we understand this. We've read this story our whole lives. We We've come across this, even if you're not even affiliated with uh, Christianity very closely, you probably knew, at least from a, in a vague way, that one of the disciples betrayed Jesus and one denied Jesus, Peter being the one who denied him. And what we're going to find, that it's shocking, and it's shocking because his denial is indeed a form of betrayal as well. Let me take you back in Israel's history, back to King David. King David, known as the man after God's own heart, he had sinned grievously. He had sinned grossly. His sin affected his whole family. Eventually, it affected the whole country. It began with his lust, his infidelity, then led him to murder, then meeting, leading to the death of others even in his own family. In fact, many people trace Solomon's own ravenous lust that he would have later on in life uh, straight to his father David's. Well, after David sinned and covered it up, God sent a prophet, Nathan, to go uncover the sin. I love that verse. It reminds me of that verse in Proverbs. I think it's 28, uh, verse 13 or so, some, and, and some other verses around it. Basically, it says something like this. If you try to cover your sin, it will be uncovered for all to see. If you uncover your sin, confess it and forsake it, your sin will be covered. Now, God sent Nathan to go uncover David's sin because David was not repentant about it. He was not uncovering it himself, and so God was uncovering it for the whole nation to see. After Nathan did this, David was repentant, and he wrote a song, and it's found in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4, this is what David says after being confronted for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Now, when David said, against you, he's speaking to God, against you, you only have I sinned, he is not shirking his responsibility to his family and to his nation. And we know that because David, in repentance, goes and, and makes reparation and, and repents of his sin against them and, and reconciles with people. He's not saying, oh, this is just between God and me, and that's it, and don't have to worry about anything else. He's not saying that because clearly he went later and, and repented of these things and tried to get these relationships back together. What he's saying is, is that his sin, and ultimately all sin, is first and foremost a violation of our holy creator God. It is a betrayal, fundamentally, not merely of other sinners. It is a betrayal of God. In the uh, 1600s, there was a Puritan by the name of Ralph Venning. He wrote a tract called The Sinfulness of Sin. And uh, you may say, that's kind of a silly title. Why would, why would he call a book that? It's kind of like saying the thievery of theft. It's the definition is the word is the same. How could we even know anything about this? It's just redundant. Well, we must study the sinfulness of sin because we as humans make sin all the time, especially our own sin, less than it really is, don't we? We explain our sin in terms of mistakes or missteps, like politicians. Well, I misspoke. I misspoke in claiming to be there for that thing and being part of it. I, I misspoke. We speak euphemistically about our sin as though it was just a, a slight misunderstanding, a mistake, almost like we made a, a, a typographical or grammatical error and we just needed to go back and, and adjust. It really wasn't that big of a deal. I read an article this week by R.C. Sproul. He described all sin as an act of cosmic treason. He said, quote, even the slightest sin that a creature commits against his creator does violence to the creator's holiness, his glory, his righteousness. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us, and as such is an act of treason against the cosmic king. I'll make sure and drop Sproul's article in the family group outline this week. To give a little preview, he shows us the biblical ideas of sin, biblical words that are attributive of sin. One word is this, debt. When you sin, you incur debt. We have stolen from God's glory. God is to be glorified in this world. God is to be glorified in us. Everything we do, everything we think, everything we are ought to be focused on glorifying God. And when we don't do that, we are stealing from the glory of God. We are taking from God what is rightfully His. And when we sin, we become debtors. Another word that describes sinners and sin is the word enmity. All sin, no matter how little, is an act of hostility towards God. You may not feel in your heart that God is your enemy, but you're acting like an enemy of God. God says, this is the relationship, these are the terms and conditions of the relationship. You ought to, to, to be on my team, to be my child, to live a, a, as, as someone who's following me. You, you should do this and this and this. And even if in the smallest way you shake your fist at God and say, no, I will do something different, and you violate those terms and conditions, you violate that agreement, Paul says it makes us enemies of God. We are at enmity with God. The third word that describes 
sin is the word transgression, meaning that God has given us a path of joy and blessing. It's a path that honors Him, a path that we are to remain on. We follow His commands. We abide in those commands. Those commands abide in us, and as long as we do that, we honor and glorify God. To sin is to violate, to transgress those commands, to stomp on them, treat them as nothing. Hebrews 10, 29 talks about sin, that it's trampling underfoot the Son of God, profaning the blood of the covenant. I know that when you tell a little white lie, when you do a, a little cheating on this or that, when you just say something that's a little indiscreet, when you, when you ingest things that are just maybe a little off color, you think, well, it's just small, it's no big deal. Remember Hebrews 10, 29, you're profaning the blood of the covenant. Well, back here in Matthew, I think there's some intent here that we're, we should be shocked that Peter, of all people, did this, that he basically joined the forces of darkness. He joined not Jesus, he joined Judas. He, he came against the Son of God. He spoke against Him. Here's a person who's closest to Peter, excuse me, closest to Christ, it is Peter, and he joins Judas. That's why I, I believe it's not just mere denial here. Usually we think of Judas as the only one betraying, and truly he is the betrayer. He's the one that betrayed Jesus over to the enemies. But you understand how if sin is a debt, if sin puts you at enmity, if sin is a transgression, that then you understand that any sin... Any sin is an act of betrayal. It's a shocking act of betrayal. All sin is an act of cosmic treason. Like I said, Peter allies himself not with Jesus but with Judas. He had the opportunity to profess what he did once before, to say Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and I am His and He is mine. And he didn't do that. Instead, he became a willing, consenting spectator, joining the forces of darkness that would eventually put Jesus on the cross. Now, when it comes to our own sin, folks, let's see our own hearts. Let's call sin, sin. We are no different than Peter. We're no different even than Judas here. Even if we sin like Peter is, after we are saved, after confessing Jesus as the Messiah, we betray the one we love and the one who loves us. It is indeed a shocking act of betrayal. I really think if we could comprehend the sinfulness of sin, it, it would help us in our desire to be holy. If we could really put in our minds and our hearts as we fall into sin, how, how horrifying and terrible sin is, I believe this would help us in our desire to be holy. All right, number two, the downward spiral of sin. You probably noticed this about Peter's sin. It gets progressively worse, the sin of betrayal and denial. Starts out just as a mild denial. He denied them before them all, verse 70, saying, I do not know what you mean. What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. Sort of ashamed, embarrassed. He's outed by a servant girl. You're one of the disciples. I don't know what you're talking about. 
Then, verse 71, gets a little worse. He went out to the temple entrance. Another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it, he said, this time with an oath, saying, I do not know the man. Denied it with an oath, meaning he said something like, in our vernacular, it would be something like, I swear on my mother's grave, right? I don't know this guy. I think we have a little empathy with Peter on that, that first denial. We have empathy with him because we've all done that. We, we've been provided a, a perfect opportunity to, to ally ourselves with Christ, to, to make it clear that we are a Christ follower, and, and maybe it's at work, maybe it's with family or friends, and we, we just kind of shy away from that. We don't want to be considered some sort of Christian weirdo, and we sort of shy away from it. And now Peter's gone a step further. I swear on my mother's grave, I have nothing to do with this man. I've never known this guy. He swears, he makes an oath. Of course, layer on top of this, as Jesus told people in the Sermon on the Mount, don't make oaths like this. Third time, it's even worse. Verse 73, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. They pick up on his Galilean accent. Every once in a while, someone will come to me and say, you're not from here. How can you tell? The twang in my voice goes back to Oklahoma. And people pick up on that. They hear that. The same thing for Galilee. I imagine Galileans sounded a lot like Oklahomans. <laughs> and they hear this and they say, oh, yeah, you sound like Jesus. Maybe even he used words that they knew Jesus had used. Phrases, idioms. And it says he began to invoke a curse on himself. In other words, he's saying, may I be damned if I'm telling you a lie. I don't know the man. And it says, and he began to swear. And that's exactly what you think of. He began to cuss. So he made oaths again, and he began to cuss. You see, it goes worse and worse and worse with Peter. And what we see here is this downward spiral of sin. It's that old evangelistic saying, sin takes you where you don't want to go, further than you want to go, faster than you want to get there, and leaves you there longer than you want to stay. This is the nature of sin. You can think of that old tale. A guy starts to wonder, maybe in his imagination, maybe on the Internet, maybe it's flirting with somebody at work. That leads to actions, activity. He actually acts on these things. It leads to a sour marriage, a sour home life. It leads to anger. He comes home. He's not happy. He kicks the dog. The kids see this. They get angry. The wife finds out. She gets angry, has, a, has an affair of her own just out of spite. The family's falling apart. The man is angry every day. He's brooding, and so his job, his work, Efficiency diminishes as he goes to work and people begin to see this. He doesn't get the promotion. He blames his wife. Divorce happens. It begins to separate. The kids see this. It goes further and further. This sin spreads and spreads and spreads. On and on, the train of sorrow and sin plows forward, gaining more and more momentum. I read a book in seminary called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be by Planiga 
It's a book about hamartiology, which is a study of sin. Now, that'd be a joyous class, wouldn't it? In one of those chapters, he details that sin does indeed take this downward spiral. What does it do? What does it happen when you sin? Well, the sin begins to spread, first of all, in your own heart, in your own life. You're inclined to commit that sin once again. In fact, you become in tune with opportunities to commit that sin. You become sensitive not to the Holy Spirit, not to your, the, your conscience, not to what the Word of God says. You become sensitive, okay, when can I get away from this? When can I commit this? When can I do this? And so you do it even more. Oh, there's an article written, I think it was by Tim Challies, that talks about the actual physiological thing that happens to people who are addicted to pornography. Things begin to happen in their body, in their mind, that inclines them to the secret sin. It becomes a physical addiction to that sin. What else happens in this downward spiral? Well, it begins to spread to others. Other people are affected by your sin. Either they join in or they react sinfully to your sin. If you have watched any documentary or read any book or heard just about anything about serial killers, what is almost always true, a wrecked home life, right? Something happened to them. Someone hurt them. Someone did something to them, maybe habitually as they were a young child. It, it buried itself in them. And it spread to them, created a monster. What else is true about the downward spiral of sin? Well, sin is a numbing agent. Paul talks about a seared conscience. This is like when you're scarred and you lose the nerve endings in that part of your body. What used to seem way off limits, now it doesn't even bother you. And so you sin even more. You violate your conscience once again and again and again, trying to find that, that high of violating truth, violating the law. And you move further and further and more horrifying and repulsive sins. Sin also distorts your understanding. It attracts from your ability to discern you're so caught up in this sin, you're so, caught up, you're so drawn into this, you've lost your idea of truth, you don't spend time in the truth, you don't spend time studying the Word. And so your ability to discern is skewed, maybe ever so slightly at the beginning, but it gets worse and worse and worse until you cannot even discern right and wrong. The worst part is you think you still know. You think you're, you're like a, an alcoholic who drunkenly slobbers all over himself and says, thinks he's all right, just fine enough to grab the car and drive off. You don't even know how you've come in your mind and your heart. So much of what we do in, uh, Pastor Steve especially does in counseling and discipleship, is backing through all those effects of sin. You, it's pretty much impossible to go back through and recount every last sin, but you can work back through and you should work back through all those effects of sin, all those broken relationships, all those things, and you try to find ways to, to set these things right. And some people go so far down the road of sin, so far down the spiral, that they have a lot of work to do in their heart and their mind and their body even to get back to following the Lord. 
to creating a tender heart again, restoring those relationships, having faith and repenting of sin. Well, here in this passage, we see this downward spiral of sin. Again, I think the purpose is to show us this context of what's happening here around the death of Jesus. There's a whole load of sin. It's spiraling out of control, sucking even Peter, of all people, even Peter and the other disciples into it. It was a dark, dark day, even before Jesus was put on the cross. Sin was out of control. Satan was having his way among the politicians and the priests and even Peter. But look at verse 45, excuse me, verse 75. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter's sad, he's broken, he realizes that Jesus was right. That phrase, wept bitterly, means he sobbed uncontrollably. Here's a guy who's broken, he finally understands how far he's come, the weight and horror of his sin. And this is a sorrow that led to repentance. We see this. He turned, he led, he encouraged the brothers, followed Jesus, ended up preaching the first Christian sermon. Yet here he is at the bottom. He'd been swimming in the filth and the sewage with the other enemies of God who put Jesus on the cross. But there's a beautiful thing here. There's something that is glorious here, something that should fill us with hope even in the midst of our sin. Number three, the sovereign power over sin. Christ, in this passage, is still in control. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. This didn't catch Jesus by surprise. It caught Peter by surprise. It caught the other disciples by surprise. This did not catch Jesus by surprise because he, after all, part of his sovereign purpose. God is still on His throne. This was all part of His plan, part of His foresight, even part of His care and nurturing of His men and teaching them a lesson. If you look at the parallel passage in Luke, Jesus not only predicted Peter's fall, but He shows a little bit of His purpose for it so that the others would be encouraged and strengthened. Luke 22, 31 and 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is such a great text to teach us about the problem of evil. The problem of evil. What is God's sovereignty? What is a good God doing when there's evil happening in this world? What can we see here? What can we deduce? Well, one thing we can deduce is that God Himself is not the author of evil. God does not create evil. Sometimes people come up and they ask me, well, why did God create evil? Well, evil is not created. Evil, sin, is simply the exclusion of Godness. It's the exclusion of holiness. It's a, it's a minus. That's what evil is. Evil is not some substance, some thing that exists on itself. It's like the, the, the analogy in the Bible is light and darkness. Darkness is not just some thing that you bring in, and if you have enough darkness in your hand, you can let it go in a very bright room. That's not the way it works. The way darkness works is you exclude, you extinguish light. And that's what sin is. Sin is the exclusion of God. It's the exclusion of godness or goodness. It's to negate God. It's to negate His holiness that's why it's logically impossible for God to sin. 
because sin is the opposite of who he is. It's not just something he can't do, it's just logically impossible. God cannot sin. So we see this, that it's not God doing this sin, it's Peter sinning. It's Satan involved here. The second thing we can see in terms of the problem of evil, we can see that God has not merely allowed evil, but He's purposed it. He's purposed this evil so that something better can happen, so that He can display His grace and His mercy and His justice. You can take this little story of of Peter, expand it to the broader story of of Jesus and the crucifixion, then expand it to the template of to make a template of all evil, and what you end up is with an, an eternal view of the divine purpose of evil. That though God is not the author of any, any evil, like I said, it'd be logically impossible. Though God does not author any evil, He purposed it for a time so that He can display His mercy and grace by saving people and His justice by damning sin and sinners. This is really the story of the end times. God is making all things right. Now that He has let evil run its course, He brings it to its rightful end. He, he executes perfect justice to the praise of His glorious grace. And He saves people from it. And we all worship Him for eternity for it. Another thing we realize when we Think about this idea and the interplay of evil in this world. Another sort of thought that I wrote down here is that we don't want a God who's not sovereign over evil. Right? You don't, you don't want a God who's as surprised by your sin or an earthquake, a tsunami, a bunch of rain in California... You don't, want, you don't want to worship a God who doesn't have sovereignty over those things, who's taken aback and surprised and scrambling to find, up, find some sort of resolution. You want a God who has it in His sovereign purpose and has it all masterfully working according to His will and purpose so that He can eventually cause us to glorify Him. Well, back to our story here in Peter. I believe we're to see ourselves here. We are Peter. We are this disciple. We fail, we fall, we sin, but none of our evil deeds catch God by surprise. None of it is out of the scope as of authority and His control. I love how Jesus said it, Satan demanded to have you. So Satan, and you can see this in the book of Job as well, Satan is not just free to go do whatever. He has to get permission, must be completely under God's authority and God's sovereignty. So we fail, we sin, we're part of that whirlwind of dark sin that put Jesus on the cross. But if you're a follower, all these things are for your good and for His glory. It may cause in you, falling into sin may cause in you a greater holiness. I'm not saying sin so that grace may abound. Paul said, may it never be. Don't do that. But the fact is, as you fall into sin and the great thing that you can understand is that God can use that, use that failure. He can use those sins even committed against you. He can use those to cause in your heart a love and an admonition for God. So if you're like Peter, you're a believer, you profess Christ, you follow Him, yet you fail, there's hope. You weep bitterly, 
but there's hope. You can be forgiven. God can give you grace. He can change you and move you to do what is right. Maybe it takes some homework. Maybe it takes some time, some accountability. God can change you. If you're not a genuine believer, you better get things right with the Lord. Because in the end, God will display His justice against all sin and sinners, those who have not repented. So have faith in Christ, repent of your sin, turn to Christ even today. Let's pray for God's grace to do these things. Father, we thank you so much for what you've given us. We thank you for the story of Peter. Peter represents us. We're so much like this. We fail, we fall, we falter, we betray you, we deny you. Forgive us of these things, dear Lord. Pray that, Lord, you would bless us with a desire to persevere in the faith, to nurture that idea of following Christ, of being a better and better Christ follower, thinking more and more like you, loving you more and more, being in your word more and more. Help us pursue this. Make this our desire. And Lord, for those who don't know you, cause in them a heart that would repent, have faith in Jesus Christ, give them a desire to be on the right side of eternity of those who worship you for your mercy and your grace and your love and your justice against all evil. We do this even now. We worship you for all these things. And we ask that you help us in doing this. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, let's stand and let me read a benediction. Now may we go encouraged that Christ prays for us, that after failure we would repent and return to the faith, and that we would strengthen one another. Amen. Amen.